O Heavenly Father, Your Word commands us not to lay up for ourselves treasures on this earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but to lay up instead treasures for ourselves in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. And the Word is from our Lord to us this morning that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Dear Jesus, we thank You that everyone who is in Christ this morning, who has been made one with You in Your death and resurrection, who has been saved from his sin by the life-changing power of the Holy Spirit of God, awakening the dead man unto life in Jesus Christ, we thank You that for all of us, our treasure is You. For those areas of our unsanctified mind and life that tend toward old ways of thinking and the remnants, the vestiges of sin in the old man that would desire the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life, we confess those tendencies as sin and we abhor them. We love You and we hate those things that would stand in between our eyes and our affections, and Your glory and Your greatness. This morning, use Your Word, we pray, to peel back blinders from our eyes that we might behold You in the fullness of Your glory, that we might dwell on the things that You have procured for us in Your death and secured for us in Your resurrection, that we might, Lord, be captivated with the fullness of the gospel everything that you died to complete, dear Jesus Christ. I pray that you would bind us together, Lord, in unified purpose of glorifying your holy name so that your word might work its way through our members to faithful obedience and unified purpose to advance the cause of Jesus Christ and the great gospel of the kingdom wherever you lead us this week. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord for the opportunity to spend time in His Holy Word this morning. I'd invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 19 in a moment. We'll stand, if you're able, and read together verses 13 through 22. While you're turning there, the title of this morning's message is Subject Lesson. Just a little play on words. You've heard of the term Object Lesson where somebody takes a thing or an object that's not the same but could be similar or used to illustrate a particular point, we learn more about a topic by that teaching tool. Well, this morning there is an object lesson for us to behold in the pages of Matthew 19 where the approach of children to Christ versus a young and successful man, a leader ruler we find later in Luke's Gospel, the approach of these two parties to Christ. And in there we find what it means to be a subject of the kingdom of heaven. In our study of Matthew's theme, we've talked about the four divisions of a kingdom, four aspects of a kingdom, sovereign, subjects, realm, and law. And this morning, as the occasion of a question and the approach of children to Christ affords the Gospel writer, we see a little more clearly 
after considering these pages before us today, these words before us today, what a subject in good standing looks like in the kingdom of God. So with that introduction, stand with me if you're able, and let us read Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 22. Follow me as I read. Then children were brought to Him, that is to Christ, that He might lay His hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Verse 16. And behold, a man came to him, again to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter eternal life, keep the commandments. But he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 20. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. On multiple occasions... We'll find even in the course of this message, four questions that have come to the fore in the context of this chapter and surrounding chapters. Those four questions that are asked by different ones, like disciples, Pharisees, in this case, a ruler, a young man of some prominence in the community at that time, also uh, different uh, ones throughout the course of the gospel, who come to Christ, whether to test Him, genuine curiosity, or a heart to hunger and grow in the truth of the gospel, it has come to be a pattern in Matthew's record that they will phrase that in the form of a question. And that question then will provide the occasion for teaching as to the kingdom of God. Christ takes this particular occasion to expound on who are the subjects or the citizens those who are are in good standing, and those who stand condemned before the Lord, before His sovereignty in the kingdom of God. Christ takes this occasion in the gospel account of Matthew to reveal this added dimension, more about the nature of God's covenant relationship and His plan indeed for all of time and history and the world in the future, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven as the term is used in Matthew's Gospel. This incident in Matthew 19 provides a perfect opportunity to qualify model citizenship or what a subject of the kingdom of God looks like. Again, as we say here, the message of the new covenant membership thus continues to surprise Christ's hearers as their own notions, their preconceived ideas, their impression, their expectations, perhaps the teachings they've heard from their own rabbis in the synagogue in prior years and months, 
their own experience in that regard, their understanding, perhaps what they had in their uh, just cultural knowledge, all of these become challenged one point or another, it seems, in Christ's proclamation of the kingdom. Truly, the messianic truth of who Christ is and the nature of His relationship to the Father's plan into the future and His relationship to His own is staggering, unexpected, and gloriously manifold in all its varying degrees of beauty, like facets on a diamond that proclaim and display and glorify God, we see over and again the hearers blown away, surprised, taken aback at the truth of the gospel. In this passage, there's two incidents that are back-to-back in the narrative. The first is these children who came to Christ, and Christ was laying His hands on them. That's what their parents, presumably those that brought the children, wanted Him to do, and He was praying for them. There's that incident, but right back-to-back, appearing next to it in the text, is this incident that we just read as well, where an individual, a successful, prominent member of the community, asks a question of Christ. And so here again is a lesson in the kingdom of God, the civics, if you will, of the kingdom of God, the nature of the kingdom of God that is evident in these two occasions. Here Christ, the sovereign of the kingdom, interacts with children and also with a young, successful, accomplished, learned, polite, and wealthy applicant. Think of somebody who would apply for a position who would interview for a job position. That's almost the way it appears this man approaches Christ. I would like to apply for the kingdom of God. Here is my resume. Again, reading in verse 16, verse 17. He said to him, that is the young man says to Christ, or I'm sorry, Christ to the young man, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep my commandments. Here's my resume We could interject to paraphrase, and in verse 18, the man answered, which ones? And Jesus says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, and so on. And the young man answers Christ, and he says in verse 20, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? And then Christ addresses the heart of the matter in commanding him to go and to sell all that he has and give it to the poor. So here we have an application for the kingdom of God, and we have these children who are approaching Christ. And surely in here are a few lessons about what we can learn as to the subjects or citizens of the kingdom of God. A heading for three points this morning. Interactive lessons from conversations with Jesus. There are those who had conversations with Christ throughout the gospel And in these interactive moments, we can learn lessons as to the kingdom of God, and perhaps three we can learn this morning. First, let's note the personal and the pointed contrast, particularly in these two incidents that I've mentioned, the children versus the rich young ruler. Secondly, let's notice the premise of the question. There's a lesson from the interaction we have in this young man in Christ in the premise of his question. And asking, what must I do to obtain eternal life? And offering his resume, we can learn something there. And then thirdly, this morning, let us behold the power and the use of the law of God. Let's note the pointed contrast, the premise of the question, and the power of the law. And then next week, Lord willing, 
We'll pick up on verses 23 to the end of the chapter where Christ begins to expound in greater detail some of the providential uh, ways that the soil of the heart can be prepared to hear the Word of God and some of the providential hardness that sometimes stands in the way of the fertility of her own soul blooming forth into gospel revelation. And in this case, it has a lot to do with our station in life. Our material possessions can be a huge thorn in the flesh and can be a big blind spot for those coming to the Lord. And we can pray and cry out that there would not be found in us stones within our soil or thorns that would grow up to restrict the growth of the kingdom of God in our own lives. Before we explore these points in a little more detail, I'd like to open with an illustration that came to my mind fortuitously last night. Um, the occasion of a family text thread gave me this idea. Um, it's come to our attention that some family members are planning in our family to move to Singapore, actually. And so I, knowing nothing virtually off the top of my head, of the city, nation, come to find out, of Singapore. I did a little web search quick to find out what Wikipedia had to say. And so, you know, that great omniscient source of information gave me some fun facts to consider about the city of Singapore. Well, I thought it might be funny to post in this text thread some, some pictures of, the, of a dilapidated city and like, are you sure you want to move here, you know? So I typed in and to see what Google had to offer and every picture I saw was just glorious, uh, beautiful, almost a fantastic uh, picture of you know, glowing buildings at night and placid pools and infinity you know, pools on the tops of skyscrapers and well-cultivated lawns and glowing pictures of architecture everywhere you turned. And I thought, well, maybe this isn't so bad. Maybe I should feel a little jealous about my family members getting to move to this city. But then on a hunch, I typed in something else. I typed in Singapore slums. And I cannot tell you how shocked I was at the contrast. And my family knows because I posted 17 pictures. The, as far as the eye could see, there are areas in Singapore of absolutely dilapidated shacks built on literal garbage where polluted streams, it's hard to tell if they run through the houses or not, and houses are built on houses, and people are living in utter squalor. And a little more research unveiled some economic facts. Um, there's one kind of on the positive side thing to note about this city, and that is apparently one in six people in Singapore are millionaires. But on the other side of the coin... In the developed world, it has, this area has one of the greatest income disparities of anywhere on earth. That is to say, the rich people of Singapore tend to be far richer than people in other areas, and the poor people of Singapore tend to be far poorer than any uh, other developed area. So it's, it's an interesting set of circumstances. As I looked at those pictures, however, my heart began to stir because I had been contemplating Matthew chapter 19. Where has Jesus been ministering prior to this narrative section here? He's been in the northern regions, in the areas of Galilee, the outposts of the civilized area of Judea. And I asked myself this question, if Jesus 
were to minister in Singapore today, where might he spend most his time? Where might more gospel capital return on its investment in the preaching and the proclamation of the risen Christ who delivers us from the chains of all bondage, chief among them our own sin? Would that message tend to bounce off the ears of the rich, the powerful, the famous, and the millionaire? But I wonder if it might sound much more like hope to the destitute, the afflicted, and those living in garbage and in squalor. You see, the way we think about successful opportunities, where we might set up camp, where we might take a vacation, what looks like a beautiful future for us, a retirement location, a potential timeshare to consider purchasing, all of those thoughts tend to dominate our minds as people who look for the softer side of life and think more about our own entertainment than gospel opportunity. But if we put aside those ideals and those values for a moment and think about where the gospel needs to go, I wonder if our heart wouldn't be stirred for those shanty towns that reach into the distance, for the corners of our earth that are inhabited by those who maybe know well because of their circumstances that there is no hope in riches. Now don't get me wrong, I'm sure there's plenty who live in those slums who think if only I could be a millionaire like those across the street. And they might be just as guilty in their own waywardness of thinking of idolatry. And just the same, there may be others who live in the high-rises who have grown, whose affections have grown sour with what idolatry promises, joy for the moment, but an emptiness of soul and a complete hardening of the affections against the true state of our condition. They might cry out, what must I do to be saved? But nevertheless, in these two pictures, we have something of the human condition evident for us. And it is similar to the context of our passage here. In the first case, we have children who are brought to him. And the picture is of kind of those of the common folk in the wilderness who are following Christ on foot. And they are seeking him to submit to him. They're asking him to meet their needs. They're coming for healing and for encouragement and for his teaching to touch the heartstrings of their soul and to meet them in their brokenness. But then on the other hand, we have a man who comes to him saying, Teacher, what deed must I do to have eternal life? And we find that this man is one described in Luke chapter 18 as one of a different sort and of a different life station. A ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers in a similar way in that parallel passage. We find that this man is not only well off, as our passage in Matthew 19 tells us that he had great possessions, but he also had a lot of influence. So anyway, that kind of sets the stage for our points this morning. First of all, continuing along the line of that illustration I just gave you, I told you I tried to give a descriptive language, a pointed contrast between the dilapidated conditions of slums and the high-rises of millionaires. In the section of our text this morning, there are pointed contrasts like that 
in the record. I'd like to draw a few out for you to consider. First of all, children versus rich young ruler. The children were brought to him that he might lay hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. There's two things going on here of note in this first point. Children versus rich young ruler. First of all, notice the types of people that were coming to Christ. As Tim read in the parallel passage in Mark, these were those who maybe were so young that they wouldn't remember in their later years meeting Christ. Maybe their parents would have to remind them, when you were just three years old, when you were just one or two, I set you on the lap of our Savior. He scooped you up in His loving arms and He prayed for you. And we know that our Savior yet prays for us, little one. He has risen and ascended. I'm, in my mind, I have this believing family later on recalling this event. We have a risen and ascended Savior who ever lives to pray for us, even as our Savior years ago prayed for you when you were just a child. The disciples did not see the value of this exchange. The disciples rebuked the people, the parents, the guardians of these children, and said, get away. Don't bother our Master, our Savior. He has more important people to talk to. He has a very busy schedule. And this doesn't represent a good use of our Savior, of our Master's time. He has more important people to meet with. People like who, you might ask? Well, in contrast, a perfect example of a great person for Christ to meet and influence is for us, is recorded for us in the verses that immediately follow. Verse 16, And behold, a young man came to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to enter eternal life? This is the man, as I mentioned before, who appears in our text as young, successful, accomplished, learned, polite, wealthy, influential. Certainly the disciples would have thought, this is a great candidate for the kingdom of God. These are the kinds of people the Messiah ought to reserve his time, which is limited, and his words, which are, yes, valuable and powerful, but let's get the most bang for our buck. This man can influence any number of people. But notice what happens in the text. Christ condemns, he corrects, he rebukes those who would keep the children from him, and he says, let the little children come to me, do not hinder them. Yet this other man, this is totally counterintuitive to the expectation of the disciples and no doubt others. When Christ raises the bar so high that this man is shown to be the idolater that he is and that by his very laudable and man's eyes righteous standards, he still falls short of this impossible standard of righteousness. What happens? Christ basically sends him away. So discouraged at what Christ has said to him, he goes away sorrowful, for he has great possessions. Imagine what Judas felt at this moment. Judas was upset because expensive ointment was poured out. He said, oh, that, that money could go into the coffers and be given to the poor. Judas, no doubt, would have felt a sorrowful and that in his own soul at seeing this man walk away. Oh, missed opportunity. In a man of 
important influence and wealth. Sure, he enjoys his possessions, but I'll bet you we could talk him out of a percentage. This man would be a good tither, a good giver, could well support our ministry. This is one that we could build a kingdom with. If we turn these away, what hope will our movement have into the future? But you see these contrasts, both in the persons that received from Christ blessing, prayer, healing, encouragement, the word of God in favor, and those who came to him on their terms, who ended up being turned away and not having their hearts softened in condition to repent of their sin, but instead doubling down in their hardness. Another thing to note at this point is that in contrast to the world's way of thinking, children are valuable in the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 18, which was a text for a prior message, it says in verse 1, that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child. Here's another object lesson, right? Calling to him a child, Christ put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Disciples had already received the instruction of Christ as to the value of children. We mentioned in that message that it is the mark of the Christian church of all ages that His people representing Jesus Christ would reach out in gospel compassion to children and the childlike. It is the mark of the church of Jesus Christ if we had the privilege of visiting Singapore to risk disease, to risk the unhealthy conditions and to go to those slums and to bring the compassion of Jesus Christ into the garbage heaps of this world, among the impoverished, the disadvantaged, and the poor and the lowly and children, the vulnerable and the weak and those who are lost. Ultimately, the lost includes everyone on account of our sin. But children are a glorious picture of what the gospel uh, or the conditions of, the, of where the gospel is most pointed in the work and ministry of Christ and ought to be in the work and ministry of the church. And also by God's providence, where often the seed of the word is most fertile. And so it is that the Christian worldview has trained, has taught the West to value children. I heard recently an article that was well documented. It showed through history that paganism has never elevated consistently the value of the child. Prior generations, prior peoples and cultures have not valued children. Today, if a politician wants to get purchase for spending your money, they'll probably guilt you into this good government program by their terms by saying it's for the children, it's for the children. The value of children that we still hang on to, generally speaking in our culture, is used as a draw card to pull on your affections so that you might uh, agree with, with them and so on. But such was not always the case. And in fact, pagan influences in our own day, day are denigrating the view of children in the West. 
There were times when it was far worse than it is now in spite of the 55 million plus who've been aborted since Roe v. Wade. But there was times in the past where children were employed in slave labor, where they're abused, where they didn't share the rights of citizenship. They didn't have equal standing in the society as their parents. But it was Christianity and the word of Christ and the authority of his word that interjected into these values in pagan, fallen, decrepit culture and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Christ uses as his object lesson the humility of a child and says that those who are greatest in the kingdom must become as one of these. He says that it is our call and our charge if we have received the grace of God that we would receive a child, even one such child in my name. And thus, when we obey him, we receive him because he loves and receives and blesses and values those who are children and the childlike. And conversely, he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for great millstone were fastened around his neck. The judgment that is worthy of those who despise children, who reject children, who devalue children, who build their lives of convenience and riches and success on the broken backs of aborted children. Those are the ones who must repent. They're in danger of hellfire. They have, as it were, the condemnation of Christ hanging on their neck as a millstone, sinking them to the depths of their own judgment if they do not repent. Incidentally, Singapore is looking for people to migrate to their nation because I'm told also that they have the lowest birth rate in the world, 0.8%. It takes an average of 2.1%, demographers tell us, to replace a population. But even there, you can see there is a gospel need in that city, as there is in ours. Whatever those conditions are that play into that percentage, I can guarantee you that a good part of it is just plain old sin. We have the same problem in our nation today. Uh, within recent weeks, CNN has come out with an article um, waxing frustrated and uh, concerned about the future of our own nation because the replacement rate just by births of our society does not bode well for the future. Their concern is that the government-sponsored programs that would take care of the elderly through you know, Medicare and retirement, whatever else we try to do, would go unfunded in the future because we've so devalued children that people in my generation and younger are not welcoming them even into their own wombs, into their own homes. This is a message that we need to hear today, that Christ does not smile in such values. When children were brought to Him, He laid hands on them and prayed for them, and He rebuked those who would keep the little children outside of the kingdom of God who would hinder them from coming to him. He says, as such belongs, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Under these pointed contrasts, we've drawn out a few. Notice the contrast of those who were the children and those who brought them. Notice what they, what they came to receive from Christ. Or notice how they came, rather. Verse 13, 
Then the children were brought to him that he might lay hands on them and pray. So here there is this picture of being brought that there is a great need and there is, by God's grace, those who come alongside his providence to bring us to him. Anyone who comes to Christ recognizes that they didn't awaken to the truth of the gospel on their own reasoning alone. No, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but we were brought to Christ just like these little children. A force bigger than us watching out for us as represented by these children's guardians brought us to Him, namely the Holy Spirit working and changing our heart. But in contrast, the story that follows is a man who came up to Him, a man who comes on his own volition and his own power, and most importantly to note by contrast, his own terms. The children were brought to Him to be blessed by Him, to partake in Christ's ministry. The young man comes to Him to negotiate, he comes with his own agenda and terms, and he comes to interact as an autonomous individual, not as one who would submit to the ministry of Christ, but as one who comes to negotiate with Christ. So again, we see the contrast. And finally this morning, by way of one story versus the other, we see how the chapter or the incident closes. It's interesting, the language is the same, they went away or went away as employed to uh, change the chapter in the story, but the conditions of the leaving or the closing of, of the incident couldn't be more different. And Matthew 19, 15 says, And he, again Christ, laid his hands on them and then went away. So after the children had come, and you can, you can uh, well infer that Christ spent as much time as he needed to with all the children who were there, so that not one went missing. The line, he never left his post while the line of children and parents were still standing there, but he patiently, graciously, and lovingly invited forward every child after child, as many who would come. And only after completing that task of laying his hands on each and every one of them and praying for them, then he went away. Notice the contrast in verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Notice the distinction in the terms of parting with Christ, at least as it's mentioned here. On the one hand, the parents and the children left, blessed and receiving from the ministry of Christ, with their children uh, being held in the arms of God incarnate how did they go away with smiles in their hearts joy on their faces and a story to tell their neighbor and a kind of treasured memory that lord willing if they were found among those who confessed faith in christ they would take with them all the way to glory but on the other hand how did the young man go away the young man didn't go away blessed and having been a partaker of the free gift of grace he did not go away having met the Savior and God in flesh and there as a man preaching the kingdom and recognizing the propitiatory sacrifice of his own soon ensuing work on Calvary. No, he went away sorrowful because he couldn't come to terms 
with, and, and make some kind of compromise between his possessions, the things he truly loved, and the demands of the kingdom of God. So when he went away, it was truly a sorrowful moment indeed. These are a few of the personal and pointed contrasts we see in, this, in these two incidents. And in these, we can see the interactive lessons from conversations that children and this young man had with Christ. Secondly, let's note in the record the premise of this man's question. Let's read again chapter 19, verses 16 through 17. Behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. There's a parallel, um, this, there's parallels of this account in Mark and Luke's gospel. As I've already alluded to once before. Let me read a few of these details in Luke's gospel to reinforce this story. Chapter 18, verse 18. And a ruler asked him, that is Christ, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Again, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Before we explore the context and the curious note in the text that Jesus stops the man at the premise of his question and says, Wait, why do you refer to me as good? That is significant. But I want to draw your attention to other questions that have appeared and have, uh, and have granted the occasion for instruction already in the text. Again, back in Matthew 19, we've already considered this in our last message when we we're in this passage. But notice in Matthew 19, 3, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Later, they follow that up with a separate question. What therefore God has joined, or I'm sorry, why then, verse 7, did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? So notice this is the Pharisees asking Christ a specific question. If we go back to chapter 18, verse 21, we have a question that was asked by Peter. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as 77 times. Uh, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. And then following that record, like the question I just read to you before, is a lengthy explanation of kingdom of God terms of forgiveness. Just as following the Pharisees' question is a lengthy explanation, detailed explanation of kingdom of heaven terms of marriage. And then one more question for us to consider this morning, chapter 18, verse 1. We've already read this, but let's notice again how this question provides the occasion for instruction. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And that's when he calls to himself a child, sets it in the midst, and begins to explain the hierarchy of priorities in the kingdom of God, much different than they expected. I bring up these questions in context for you to note something. It is our precondition in our flesh to bring our questions to Christ on preconceived notion. 
there is a premise in every one of these questions that needed to be addressed. Sometimes a question, uh, a deeper question needs to be asked when somebody, like an unbeliever or ourselves, when we're just contemplating something before we go to the Lord with it. In other words, there are things that we can ask, and depending on how we ask them, we could be testing the Lord, not submitting to Him. Uh, why would a good God let thus and, uh, uh, such, and, such and such happen? Or, well, you know what I don't understand is, for how many years I've served the Lord, I can't seem to get an answer to prayer in this area. You know, all of these worries, concerns, and in some cases, um, grievances that we bring to the Lord are often in the form of a question. But the Gospels teach us to analyze those questions, to consider them carefully, to see if underneath them there's an unbelieving premise. For instance, when the disciples came and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, they presumed something. They had a premise such as this, success in the kingdom of heaven is parallel to success in the kingdoms of this world. Their question implied that kind of idea or value. That needed to be addressed, and Jesus addressed it head on. When Peter asks, uh, you know, Jesus, how often should I forgive my brother when he sins against me seven times? There's a premise in his question underneath you can hear it. Peter considers indefinite forgiveness unreasonable. Peter might say in another phrase of question, another way, well, can't we grant, can't we agree, Jesus, that it's at least a basic human right that if I extend forgiveness indefinitely, that it is unreasonable and certainly no man should be subject to such abuse? But what was missing was an understanding of Christ's own forgiveness. And the message for Peter to forgive was not on the basis of what's reasonable according to human rights, but the basis of our forgiveness is according to the measure that we have been forgiven, which is infinite and eternal and amazing. And then thirdly, the Pharisees, they asked, uh, you know, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? And then they pressed him, why did Moses give a certificate for divorce? And so they were prying something along the lines of, can the law be exploited to do an end run around God's decrees? Hey, we think we've found a place where the Word of God is contradictory. And Christ calls out their intent, and as He has done in other places, He demonstrates that their question that they are bringing shows more about their heart than it does anything else. There's an answer to all these questions but there's also a premise that needs to be confronted. So what is the premise that needs to be confronted in the question that the young man brings to Jesus? Again, that question is, uh, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Well, perhaps it is this. Ultimate goodness is within the scope of human achievement. Does this uh, man's question not presume that to be the case? A teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? That question presupposes that ultimate goodness, that eternal life, the blessing of eternal life is within the scope, it's within the ability of human achievement. And Christ is going to introduce a line of questioning that pushes that point and ultimately demonstrates to those with ears to hear that ultimate goodness is not within the scope 
of human achievement. How does he do this? Well, he does this in the way he calls this man out on the carpet for referring to him as good. That's the first way he addresses it. Again, in Luke 18, ruler says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why did Jesus answer in that way? Well, Jesus understood the heart of man, and he discerned what was presupposed in the question of this individual. And he said, the category of goodness, ultimate righteousness, is so restricted to the nature of God alone that it is wrong to refer to any mere man as the essence, the quintessential, or the ultimate good. If there is any goodness, in a sense, in us, it is on account of the goodness in God alone that has been given to Him and transferred to Him, not on His own merit, but, on God, but by God's imputed grace, by the merits of Christ alone. Jesus Christ was God in flesh. He was absolutely, positively goodness in the flesh. But this man did not recognize that. This man recognized him as an outstanding, a remarkable teacher. Jesus knew that this man would refer to any remarkable teacher in his day as a good teacher. He calls out the premise of his question and says, be careful when you employ that term, goodness. That term ultimately must be reserved for God alone. This man needed to recognize that there is nothing in his heart or the heart of man that can justify, nothing that can earn or secure salvation. And if we lean on things that we can do or assign to others and ourselves as the ground for our hope and as our joy and security, we are in great deception. We are deceived and we are guilty of falling into the prey, of falling prey of the enemy himself. And this was the lesson that Christ was teaching those with ears to hear. This was a presuppositional approach. Why did Christ question him on the premise of goodness? Well, first of all, Christ unshrouded the flattery. This man, no doubt, intended to flatter Christ, to uh, make uh, an inroad with him, not on the ground of humility and submitting to him and his authority as king and sovereign over his kingdom, but instead as one on a semi-equal plane, as a peer who could approach him, yes, for some good advice, but not approach him as a broken man who needs grace alone, but one who has quite a bit to work with, but could use a little to enhance his life. Christ proceeds with the line of questioning that demonstrates to this man that goodness cannot be established by anything intrinsic to the human heart. He appeals, this man made an appeal to goodness without the knowledge of its standard. He was making himself human effort and a, a relative fidelity to the external law, the standard of righteousness. I'd like to re remind you of our text last week in Psalm 48. In Psalm 48, there is assurance and greatness proclaimed. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. 
Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. We skip down to verse 9. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple, as your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice. It goes on to instruct the hearer, the worshiper, to walk around Zion, consider well her architecture. And the idea is, understand the kingdom of God, the city of God. Understand what? Understand that in God's right hand alone, for instance, is righteousness. And that the joy of the city of Zion is not in their own law-keeping, but in the perfect law-keeper Christ, whose goodness alone imputed to them is the ground of their justification, is their joy, is their hope is their treasure. Jesus pushes this truth as he questions the man. And finally, under the premise of this question, it is interesting to note that although this man was self-assured in some ways and unwilling to let go of much of his sin, he still had a sense, he still had something written on his soul that intrinsically reminded him that he didn't quite measure up. There was something that nagged this individual to come to Christ in the first place. After all, why would he ask this question? What do I still lack? Even though this man leaned on things that weren't the cent- central to the gospel for his hope, he understood them in some sense to be lacking. But the great tragedy was he could not bring himself to surrender to the truth. He had no assurance when he approached Christ of his own salvation, and he had no assurance when he went away. Yet because of his hard heart, his possessions, his greater treasure, and his idolatry, he could not give up what was in his hand in order that he might cling to Christ. Romans chapter 3 describes this man's condition well. When Paul, in his great apostolic record, Recording, interpreting, and applying these gospel truths declares to the writers or to the reader, but now the righteousness of God, verse 21. Sorry, let me back up to verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets Hear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The the young man intuitively had a sense that something was lacking in his life. But what he believed could fill the void was his own law-keeping. And Romans 3 is very clear. By the works of the law, no mere human being will be justified. So what is the use of the law then? 
And that moves us to point number three in our message this morning. Interactive lessons from conversations with Jesus. First of all, there is these pointed contrasts. Secondly, Christ addressed the premise of the question. And thirdly, he proceeds in questioning, demonstrating the power of the law of God. And he demonstrates primarily what we identify in Reformed theology as its second use, the second use of the law. And notice what Christ does in verse 18. He said to him, that is, the young man to Christ, which ones, which commandments must I keep? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and come follow me. Then the young man heard this. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The uses of the law are these. First of all, the law is clear in one sense to provide for governments and for the order of society basic ground rules for social order. That's the first use of the law, the civic use. God's gracious interposition into the affairs of man to record, to uh, restrain the course of evil. That's a first and appropriate use of the law. The second use of the law is what Christ employs here, I submit to you, which is sometimes referred to as the teaching use of the law, or the technical term is pedagogical use of the law. The law is a schoolmaster or a mirror, as it's sometimes said, to reveal to us our sin. Have you ever heard those who approach uh, evangelism in this way? Have you ever told a lie, even one? Have you ever stolen anything, even if it was quote-unquote small? Have you ever lusted in your heart? What does that make you? That's kind of the Ray Comfort style for evangelism, which I endorse. I agree with. It's a good example of the second use of the law. By these questions, we're doing similar to what Christ did here. We're revealing the sin of ourselves and others. The righteous standard of God shows us where we have fallen short. In Matthew, Christ has already preached that the law's high standard doesn't include just the external form of the law, but it includes the heart level commitment to what it intends. Therefore, being angry with the brother is the same as murder, and lusting in the heart is equivalent of committing adultery. And in this way, this young man's sin was revealed. As Christ asks him these questions, it is shown that he is covetous of heart. Yes, indeed, the man has not kept all the commandments. He might have thought he did, and he might have had a great track record externally. But when it came to the heart of the matter, he did not treasure the things of God or value the law. Because when his Lord, uh, when Christ the Lord came to him and confronted him, he chose his possessions covetously over following Christ. This is the second use of the law. The third use, just for your information, these categories are very important and very helpful, is for sanctification. It's sometimes called the didactic use of the law, training as to worship. Sometimes I've referred to the third use of the law as a vision for sanctification. So we look to the principles, we look to the instructions of the Word of God, and we see that they serve us well to order our civil affairs, to show us our sin, 
And then, once we have come to Christ, confessed our sin, and find ourselves united to Him, it shows us how we then shall live. Secondly, under power of the law, we've covered its use and how Christ demonstrates it. Let's consider two aspects of the law that are helpful in, the, in understanding this exchange. And the law is, could be divided, as it's sometimes referred to, in two tables. And the Ten Commandments are ordered this way. You shall have no other gods before me. What kind of relationship does that law refer to? The vertical, if you will. The first table of the law refers to our duty to the Lord, our relationship to the Lord. Thou shalt not make unto me any graven image. Do not take my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. All of these are the first, and I would submit to you, most important table of the law, the premise, the ground, the foundation, the priority. Then there's the second table of the law, and this is exclusively the table that Christ employed in interacting with this young man. These are the commandments that he reiterates in verse 18. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And then in summary of the second table, Christ says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Interestingly, Christ only addresses the second table, the law that refers to our relationship with others. But a brief cross-reference in the same gospel provides us additional clues. If we turn over to Matthew 22, 36, we see that Christ not only affirmed both tables of the law, but that He understood that the first was prioritized. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Notice another question that is brought to Christ, providing the occasion of instruction. Chapter 22, then, verse 37, And He said to him, So this, according to Christ, is the greatest commandment in the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Deuteronomy 6.5 is a good cross-reference that comes to mind. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Verse 38, this is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then our Lord says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Christ in His line of questioning uses the second table of the law. And He does so, I would submit to you, in doing so, He demonstrates that if the law externally, the things that we can see, the relationships that we have with each other, if it is kept to the jot and to the tittle, flawlessly on the external, we still are in violation. We still will be, unless Christ has given us a new heart, in violation of the greatest commandment, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It is not, it is not a stated here in Matthew 19 that this young man was a liar. No, in fact, it was probably the case that witnesses of his character could testify to the fact that he had never committed a murder in his life, that he had been adultery-free, faithful to his wife if he had one, never fornicating if he didn't. You shall not steal. Uh, he had probably not been on record with the local constable or anybody as taking anything. 
We can give him the benefit of the doubt in this regard. Perhaps he never spoke ill of his neighbor out of turn or out of character with jurisprudence. That is to say, maybe he never bore false witness. Perhaps he honored his father and mother as far as an exemplary young man could be expected to in this life. But there was still one thing he lacked. What did he lack? He lacked the loving of the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind. And how did Christ demonstrate this? He did so by instructing him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. This man went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. That is to say, he loved what he owned in the material realm, in his pocketbook, in his bank account, in his 401k, in his accumulated wealth, in his, uh, in his influence, and so on. He loved that more than the, he loved the Lord his God. Jesus later says again in Matthew 22, You shall love the Lord your God. The greatest commandment, he says, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. If there is ever a moment in anyone's life where the question of sell everything and follow me could not, could not be answered with a yes, Lord, then we need to hold ourselves accountable to this standard. The instruction in the law of God, even the didactic vision, is never universally to sell all you have, become a monk, and try to live impoverished as possible. But there is always this important factor to remember and I counted this story. If the Lord had a life of absolute poverty and abandon prepared for you, would you still follow Him? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give to the poor, you have treasure in heaven, and come follow Me. When we hear those words, Come follow Me, we ought to hear a treasure chest of riches. When we hear that invitation from Christ, come follow me, be counted among my beloved ones. Sit yourself in the position of the children who I just came, laid hands on and blessed. Be one who would come to me as they did. Come follow me, fellowship with me, partake in my sufferings, partake in my resurrection, receive my propitiatory sacrifice for your sin, enter with me into paradise, go to glory on my coattails, if you will, believing in the cross as your key to life eternal. That ought to sound in the heart of the believer like piles and piles of gold and precious gemstone and riches beyond all compare. And this is what was missing on the ears of this young man. When he heard, come, follow me, he didn't hear overflowing in the promise of Christ riches untold. That which would make the petty things of this life nothing, dust, nothing but rotten food in the refrigerator or dung in a heap to be compared with what is represented in the kingdom of God. And here we have an illustration of what Christ had said before in Matthew chapter 6. Lay up for yourselves, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. 
where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Where was this man's treasure? It was with his possessions. Where was this man's heart in this story? It was walking away from Christ. This is truly a sorrowful moment. In another parallel passage in the Gospels, it says that Christ loved this man. This was not a contentious exchange. The tone of this conversation was different than the Pharisees. But nevertheless, the call to kingdom fidelity, the call to follow me, to take up your cross, it is a call of no compromise. Christ is jealous for his glory, and it will not be shared with the idols of this earth. In closing this morning, let us take the great possession test, if you will. Where is our treasure? Where does our heart reside? Is there anything when we search ourselves in light of truth that might possess us to answer Christ, I'm sorry, and sorrowfully walk away because our possession is not in the kingdom of God? We can't let ourselves be removed and the clenched white knuckles fist hangs on to the things of this world when Christ says, let them go and follow me. Let's consider one final pointed contrast this morning. What did the children who came to Christ and their guardians ask Jesus to do for them? They asked that Jesus, they sought him for him to lay hands on them and to pray. The young man came to negotiate with Christ, to look for a way that he might gain eternal life through his own ability and merit. There is the submissive approach of the children, and there is the self-affirming approach of the young man. I submit to you this morning, according to Hebrews 7.25, that we today, every bit as much as those children, need to have the hands of Christ, as it were, laid on us, and need to receive His prayer for us. Hebrews 7.25 says that He, Christ, is able to save to the uttermost. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Let us pray that our approach to Christ would be one like these children who draw near to God through Christ so that we might be the benefit of His prayer. We can be the answer to his prayer and we can trust that Christ lays his hand on us as it were and intercedes for us continually before the Father. Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, we thank you for the lessons in the gospel. We thank you for the sharp, effective sword of the Spirit that can discern and divide between joints and marrow. It's easy for us to get distracted and to justify by some convoluted reasoning our own idolatry and waywardness of heart. May we live lives of abandon like children to you. May we truly understand and value that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven must become like the little ones in order to understand, Lord Jesus, your relationship with us. 
We are your adopted sons and daughters, Heavenly Father, on account of the saving work of our brother, as it says in Hebrews, Jesus Christ. Truly, it is an amazing relationship indeed. I pray that the sinfulness of our flesh would not blind us to the truth, but that the Spirit would enlighten our hearts and understanding to give us eyes to see that Jesus Christ alone and His work on Calvary is our salvation and secures for us eternal life. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.